Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. We're back in the Gospel of Luke this morning. We're going to be looking at Luke 16 verses 1 through 13. As you consider the many parables that Jesus told in the Gospel accounts, about a third of them have to do in some way with money. And that is the case this morning. Money tends to be for us, or we tend to make money for ourselves a personal matter. We can be pretty cautious when it comes to talking about money. We can be very cautious when it comes to our pastor talking about money. And we can quickly become uncomfortable and even upset when people talk about our money. And so it's important and it's helpful for us to look at God's word concerning money. And I think this particular section of scripture is very helpful. And so let's stand together. I want to read it. Verses 1 through 13 of Luke chapter 16. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. What a gift. What a blessing, Lord. You have graced us. We're so thankful for what we have just sung, Lord, the truth of the gospel. That because of Jesus, we can stand before you. We can come before you now. We can look to your word And because you've given us your spirit, you make sense out of it for us. You teach us, you help us, you give us understanding. So we pray for that right now, Lord. We pray that you would help us. Help us as your followers, Lord, that we would submit all of our lives to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Go ahead and have a seat. Well, it's been a while since we've been in the Gospel of Luke. When we were last in the Gospel of Luke, we were looking at the parable of the prodigal son. And in that section, that parable, and prior to that, Jesus has been talking to the great crowds that are assembling, but then turning his attention even more specifically as he speaks of those parables to the Pharisees and the scribes, addressing the uh, things that they ought to be concerned about. But here we get to chapter 16, and it tells us that his primary audience is the disciples, not just the 12 apostles, but his disciples. He's teaching now his disciples, and he tells them a story that, to be honest, is a little bit confusing, or can be a little bit confusing. The main characters in this parable are a rich man and his manager. The manager was the steward of the rich man's assets. He managed his master's estate. He was in charge. He handled the master's estate. And things must have been, according to the text, not going well. He was not doing his job well because someone comes to the rich man concerning the manager giving an account of how he's doing. It was reported that the manager, it says, was wasting his possessions. There was a rich man who had a manager, verse 1, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Now that phrase, wasting his possessions, is the same as we see in the parable of the prodigal son. Where it says that the younger son, the prodigal son, squandered his own property. It's the same thing. Squandered his property. This manager in verse or in chapter 16 is wasting his possessions. Same thing. And so verse 2 tells us that the rich man is not happy about this. You can understand that. If it was you and your possessions, and someone else was entrusted with managing those, and they were wasting them, squandering them, you might have a concern about that. And the rich man rightly does. And so he calls to him the manager of his property. What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. He lets him go, right? He's firing the manager. Turn in the account of your management. He gives him time. He's fired. He lets him go, but he gives him some time. Go and get things together. Give me an account of what you've been doing. I want to see what you've been doing. Turn in the books. Give me the books. Let me see where I'm at. Hand it over. But you can't be manager anymore. Verse 3. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Now consider this, okay? There's a couple of things in this text and in the immediately prior text, the parable of the prodigal son that that relate to each other and are purposefully following one another. First of all, you have in both accounts someone who's squandering possessions. So consider in life, here's this manager who has, like the prodigal son, squandered possessions. Now, what can he do? That's what he's asking. What shall I do? Well, what could he do? He could have, in the same way that he acted like the prodigal son and squandered possessions, he could have responded like the prodigal son and come to his senses and repented 
He could have gone to the rich man. He could have gone before him and repented and said, I was wrong. I took advantage. I didn't do what was right. It it was wrong for me. I, I shouldn't be called anything but your servant. I'm not worthy to be called your manager. He could have done that. What would have happened if he had repented? We don't know. Sadly, money was his refuge. He was anxious and he was afraid. What shall I do? And so he goes back to the problem to find the solution. Now, the prodigal son does this initially, right? The prodigal son, he uh, finds himself in a terrible circumstance. And so what does he do? He goes and sells himself out. He's feeding the pigs, going back to the problem, trying to find a solution himself rather than going to the father and repenting and throwing himself on the mercy of the father in the same way here, but without the change of heart that we see in the prodigal son, this manager tries to solve the problem himself tries to find the solution himself. The manager says, I'm, I'm not strong enough. I'm not able to dig. I, I can't do hard labor. I'm not able to do physical labor. I'm not going to be able to provide for myself that way. And secondly, I'm too ashamed to beg for money. I can't do that. So what is he to do? Certainly, there's got to be fear in him. There's got to be anxiety in him. How am I going to provide? How am I going to eat? Verse 4 tells us he has an idea. I have decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. He has an idea. And this phrase, I've decided what to do, is, is more emphatic than the way it reads here in the ESV. It's more of an I know or I've got it, right? It's, a, it's kind of a eureka moment. I know. I know what I'm going to do. Comes up with this scheme, this plan. as an idea that will cause people to like him, to be indebted to him. So that he'll be taken care of when he's dismissed, when he has to leave this property, when he has no means of providing for himself. And so we get to see the plan. Verse 5, so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? Calls all of his master's debtors one by one. Now, we get to see the account, we're given the account of two of the debtors. But we want to remember, all of the debtors, one by one, are called before the manager. We don't know how many that is. It's quite a scheme, and it would have cost the owner a fortune. This is what he's doing in preparing to turn in his account. He's been given this time, he's going to get the books ready, and him getting the books ready is dishonesty. He's going to change the books and get favor with man. Verse 6, how much do you owe? Verse 6, the first one says, a hundred measures of oil. Now, a hundred measures of oil was a lot. It was about 875 gallons of oil, which would amount to or be valued at more than three years' wages. Okay, some of you are fond of math, some of you are not, but three is not that big of a number. Okay, so all of us in our minds right now, we can just kind of think, just privately, this is how much I make a year, 
times three. Okay, that's a lot. All right. Three years' wages. What does he say? Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Cut it in half. Now think, okay? Put yourself in this man's position who's sitting across from the manager. How is he feeling right now? Think in your mind, okay? Here's what I make a year. Multiply by three. Divide by two. Or just take what you make times 1.5. What is that? If you sat across from someone and they said, here you go. Here's one and a half times your salary. Or if you have debt to that end, forgiven. One and a half times your salary, gone. How are you feeling? Thank you. I appreciate that. It's a pleasure doing it. You're grateful, right? You are thankful. How do you respond to something like that? There's got to be, we don't get to see this in the text, but there's got to be just overwhelming relief and joy and thankfulness. I can't believe it. I can't even believe this is happening. Going home, telling your family, you're not going to believe what happened to us today. There's joy in this, okay? We don't want to miss what's happening in the midst of here. This guy has just been forgiven a year and a half's salary. Go. Verse 7, second guy comes in. How much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. A hundred measures of wheat is estimated as being eight to ten years' wages. He says to him, take your bill and write 80. It's a lot. Forgiven. Thankfulness. Gratitude. How could I ever repay you? What could I ever do to, to say thank you to you? I can't believe this is happening to me. And on and on it must have gone. One by one, it says. He calls the debtors. Calls the debtors. And then he turns in his account. Turns in the books. All of this recorded. To the rich man. The master obviously is interested in his accounts. And he must have looked at the books. And how does he respond? Here is this manager who he knows has been dishonest. He's already dismissed him. He's already let him go. He's already fired him because of his dishonesty. Now he gets the books and he's looking them over and he sees what's taken place. How do you respond? What do you say? What do you do? Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. This is the part that gives people so much Head scratching. What? The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Not the master hunted him down and beat him senseless. Right? It's not that. It doesn't say that. It says he commended him for his shrewdness. It's very important to note that it does not say that he commended him 
for his dishonesty. It's not that he commended the shrewd manager for his dishonesty. He commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Commendation is going towards shrewdness, not dishonesty, and that's important. He commends his shrewdness, and really, what else could he do? People in the village are celebrating. There's joy in the village, right? There is joy among the people. They're likely praising this manager and certainly praising this rich man. And so if he goes to them and says to them, well, this is what really happened, how will they respond to him? What will they say of him? What will they think of him? He'll be despised. His reputation will be ruined. And so he doesn't want to take that risk. And he praises the cleverness or the shrewdness of the manager. How was this manager shrewd? What does that mean in this circumstance? What is he praising when he says he praises or commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. What did the manager do that that received commendation? The manager took advantage of his situation. He was clever. He was shrewd. Even though he's dishonest, he was shrewd and carefully worked the situation to his own advantage. How? Well, the result is that since The debtors are now obligated to him. You can imagine if you're sitting in that seat, what you're saying to this man. How can I repay you? What can I do? Thank you so much. Since the debtors were obligated to him, his future is secure. Or in other words, the manager carefully thought through and used his master's resources to secure his future. The manager carefully thought through and used his master's resources to secure his future. And that's the point of the whole parable. You look at what Jesus says following this. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For, this is Jesus The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What does that mean? Jesus, again, like this rich man in the parable, is not commending dishonesty. What he's saying is unbelievers are far more shrewd. They're they're skilled and they're diligent in securing their temporary future far more than believers are at securing their eternal reward. Now, what's his point? His point is that believers ought to be shrewd in the use of our master's resources to secure our eternal reward. He has entrusted us with much. And in the same way that this shrewd manager carefully thought through and used his master's resources to secure his future on earth, 
We ought to be careful and think through how will we use our master's resources to secure our eternal reward. And so he gives us in these next verses three lessons on the use of money for the believer. How are we to be shrewd? How are we to be wise? How are we to be careful in using our master's money to prepare for our eternal reward? Three things. First of all, we ought to leverage it. We ought to leverage it. Verse 9, Jesus is still talking. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. So that when it fails, and it will, they will receive you into your eternal dwelling. In a sense, Jesus is saying, be like the shrewd manager. Don't be dishonest, but be like him. Give. We can take that one verse there. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. What does that mean? Give. Be generous. When we are stingy, we hurt people. We neglect people. We use people when we are stingy. But when we're giving, then people are helped and we are building relationships as we display the generosity of our Savior, of Jesus. Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. What act of grace? Giving and generosity. He says just before that in verses 2 through 4 of 2 Corinthians 8. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And then after verse 7, where he's calling us to excel in this grace, act of grace of giving, he says in verses 8 through 10, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this manner I give my judgment, this benefits you. Who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Leverage your money. Utilize your money for the kingdom of God. So that those who have been blessed by your giving will receive you. That's what Jesus is saying here in verse 9. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Those you helped along the way. Those you gave to along the way. 
Money will fail, but there is an eternal dwelling and an eternal reward that we aim for, and we can leverage our money here to enhance our joy there. And that sounds strange. We can enhance our joy in heaven, but Jesus says something very similar elsewhere in Matthew six twenty. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. We ought to, as followers of Jesus, those who have been called to follow the one who was rich but made himself poor so that in him we might become rich, we need to realize that we need to give. Giving is a means of saying, money doesn't enslave me. It has no hold on me. And so we ought to leverage it. Secondly, Second lesson on money for the believer is steward it. Steward it. Verses 10 through 12. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give, give you that which is your own? Steward your money. Even those in the church who give, maybe it's a tithe, maybe it's more than a tithe, maybe it's less than a tithe. But even those who give treat money as if the portion that they put into the offering basket or give to missions or whatever they're they're doing with their money, the portion that they give to the Lord, that's God's. I gave that to you. Lord, congratulations. But the rest of it is their own. But that's just not true. We are like the manager in the parable. We're stewards of what does not belong to us. We've been entrusted with everything we have. Everything I have was entrusted to me. I am a steward of what I have. It all belongs to God. It's all His. And so we can be like the manager in the story, being dishonest and squandering it, our master's possessions. Or we can be faithful stewards of what He has entrusted to us. It's so strange we casually and happily refer to our money and our house and our accounts, but they're not really ours, given to us. Whatever I have is because of the grace of God. It's not because of anything that I have done. It's His grace, and He's entrusted it. Jesus is saying here in verses 10 through 12 that what matters is what's on the inside. If I'm unfaithful and dishonest with little, then I'm I'm going to be untrustworthy with much. And therefore, why would God entrust me with the true riches, Jesus says? If I squander unrighteous wealth, if I squander money on myself, not leveraging it for the kingdom of God, then Will God entrust me with true riches? 
And I don't mean that by what you see on television. True riches are contrasted here with unrighteous wealth. Okay, they're contrasted. Okay, true riches is not once you reach some amount of money in your bank account. True riches is our treasure in heaven. That's true riches. So don't get mixed up in what I'm saying here, saying, well, if I, if I manage a little bit, then the Lord is going to make me rich. And if I sow my seed, then God is going to make me rich. It's not that at all. This is comparing, contrasting what we have been given in Christ in heaven with earthly money, which is going to fail. It's going to pass away. Likewise, verse 12, if I am not stewarding money that is not my own, it is God's, then will I be given what is my own? The point is, it's about the heart. When Jesus saves, He saves. He changes the heart and the way that we treat things. That is His desire for us as His followers. And so just as the dishonest manager used his master's money to secure his future, we are to steward the master's money to secure our eternal future, to store up treasure in heaven. True riches. Riches that will never fail. Jesus says in Matthew 6 that where moth and rust do not contaminate them, do not deteriorate them, do not destroy them. To leverage it, steward it, and third, master it. Master it. Or to put it the other way around, don't let it master you. We're all prone. So many, even Christians, become not only infatuated with money, they become lovers of money. Money becomes their lover. In verse 13, Jesus repeats what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't. We, we tend to try But we can't do it. We cannot have God as our ultimate treasure and and have an affair with money. You can't do it. God, Jesus says, you will love the one and you will despise the other. You cannot give wholehearted devotion to God and to money. It will always be one or the other. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what he says at the end or in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. If be devoted to one, you will despise the other. Be a lover of God, not a lover of money. Master it. Don't let it master you. Here's a test. Consider this. When you're a lover of money, you get defensive when someone attacks it. When they, when they tell you how you ought to spend it. Or when they tell you that they think you spend too much. Or when they tell you that you ought to give to this or to whatever. You become, you become closed up and you become aggravated. Or you may even outwardly become defensive. 
Now, here's an important distinction. It is the love of money, not the amount of money that Jesus addresses. It is the love of money, not the amount of money that Jesus addresses. We are tempted often to think that it is the rich, whatever our standard of that may be in our minds and heart, that really need to listen to this. It is the love of money, not the amount of money that Jesus addresses. Paul in 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul's encouragement there, just like Jesus, is to not let it master you. He goes on later in chapter 6, starting with verse 17, saying, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's the heart that's being addressed. It's not the amount of money. It's the use of money. And it's whether we are lovers of money? Am I worshiping it? Am I letting it master me? Am I controlled by it? Am I serving it? And so when it comes to money, as servants of the Lord Jesus, we ought to leverage it for the kingdom of God. We ought to steward it for the kingdom of God. And we ought to master it, not let it master us. Now, why? Why? Why can we and why should we do these things? And the answer is because Jesus is not like the manager in the parable. Now, what do I mean? What did the manager in the parable do? The manager sees an issue and he calls all the debtors to himself one at a time. Sit down. What do you owe? Okay. Write this amount instead. Cross out what you owe. Write this amount instead. Next. What do you owe? Cross it out. Write this amount instead. Next. What do you owe? Cross it out. Write this amount instead. But every person that leaves the meeting with the manager still owes something. Jesus didn't do that with you. He didn't do that with me. He doesn't do that with anyone. Those people still owed a debt. But Jesus came and canceled all of our debt. He doesn't say, I'll give you this much, but you have to earn the rest. He graciously forgives and settles our account completely. Paul writes in Colossians 3, 13 and 14, And you who were dead in your trespasses... And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
I can and I ought to live a life leveraging the money that the Lord has entrusted to me and stewarding the money the Lord has entrusted to me and not letting it master me, but mastering it for the sake of his name because he has wiped my slate clean. I stand before him completely forgiven. I owe him nothing, nothing. He's freed me. And so a trillion times more than every one of those debtors that sat in front of the manager and what they felt about being forgiven that amount, we feel it a trillion times more. And we ought to say a trillion times more to our Savior, what can I do to thank you? How can I thank you for this? How can I praise you for this? What can I do? How can I live my life to bring you glory and you praise for all that you've done for me? We're completely free. We rejoice praising the name of the one who canceled our debt and living using his resources entrusted to us for the sake of his kingdom and the glory of his name. So here's some questions to ask yourself, questions I'm asking Myself to examine our hearts. What do you place your hope in? Really? What do you place your hope in? When things get rattled in your life, what do you place your hope in? Where do you find your security? When are you calm? What brings that calm? What brings that peace? Where do you find your identity? The job you have, the amount of money that you make? Where do you find your identity? What do you trust in? What do you trust in? Lastly, are you seeking to store up more treasure in heaven or on earth? If you're living as if your treasure is on earth, you want to remember the truth of the gospel. God accepts us when we are at our worst. There was no cleaning me up before I came to Jesus. I could not do it. I was dead in my trespasses. He saw me in my worst and he loved me in my worst and he saved me. He accepts us when we are at our worst and so repent and ask him to help you to steward what he has entrusted to you for his glory. We want to be faithful. I want to be faithful Jesus makes it very clear that our use of finances is a display of what we believe. And what we believe is that though he was rich, he became poor. Dying on a cross for our sins, treated as a transgressor for us. So that having faith in his name, we might become rich, holy and blameless before him. If you want to talk to someone about that, about the gospel, about Jesus, I would encourage you in just a few moments we're going to be singing together. Go to the prayer room. It's in the back of our lobby. Mark and Kristen Prince will be there. They would love to talk to you about that truth.
As we go into a time where we take the Lord's Supper, as I mentioned, Paul writes in Colossians 2, Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us by nailing it to the cross. And this happened on Him. He was nailed to the cross, bearing our sins on Himself. Bearing the record of debt for us. And so as we partake of communion together, we're celebrating that truth. His body was broken for us so that we could go free. He was treated as a transgressor and we're counted as righteous. This is as if we're in the meeting with the manager and he says to us, you are forgiven. You are free. And as we come together week in and week out to take the Lord's Supper, we're meeting with the manager again and celebrating the truth of our forgiveness. We're counted as righteous. His blood was shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. It's a beautiful truth of the gospel that we celebrate as we take the Lord's Supper. And so as we partake of the bread and the cup today, let's rejoice in His graciousness. Let's fellowship in His love. I want to encourage you, if you don't know the Lord, then let the elements pass. Let the bread and the cup pass by. Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 11 for us to partake in a worthy manner. To take the bread and the cup in a worthy manner. Not to take it in an unworthy manner. And the truth is, if we cannot proclaim wholeheartedly the death of our Lord Jesus with joy then we ought not to partake of the bread and the cup. And if that's you, then don't take that lightly. Be concerned for your own soul. And I would would encourage you, go to the prayer room and surrender your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace, Lord. You're so good to us. You have been so gracious to us, Lord. Just as Paul says, you have lavished your grace upon us to unworthy trespassers, transgressors, dead, ruined by the fall. You took advantage of your property. You took advantage of you. Lord, we pray that you would help us. Those of us here who do know your grace and your forgiveness, would you help us? We're so prone to treat your grace and, Lord, the possessions that you have entrusted to us as our very own. We take advantage of it all so often. It is a battle. It is a vice so often for our hearts and our minds. And I pray, Lord, that you would free us, help us, Lord, to be people who really do see and believe the gospel message. That though you were rich, you became poor so that in you we might become rich. You freed us from enslavement to this world so that we might live to the glory of your name, and we pray that you would help us to that end, Lord. Help us to see what you have granted to us, what you've entrusted to us as a means, Lord, 
of making you look great. Of storing up treasure for ourselves in heaven where we will be with you. We pray that you would be glorified even in our response to this text, Lord. To our finances, to our things. Help us, Lord. Help us to glorify you in these things. We pray in Christ's precious and wonderful name. Amen.